If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We've set our course to go one chapter at a time through all of this letter to the Romans. And a few weeks ago in chapter 1, we saw that God has revealed Himself through His creation. That means that when any person in all of human history, uh, any one of us even today, uh, looks outside and considers the creation around us. When, um, if you are uh, like me and have a very small interest, a kind of uh, hobbyish, when I get a chance, uh, interest in astronomy, uh, then uh, when uh, you're taking your daughter to school early in the morning before the time change and everything is dark, uh, and clear, uh, suddenly the sky is on fire and you have a, a massive uh, blood moon on the horizon. You can pull out your app and you see Mars and Venus in the sky and you just behold in wonder how all of that came into existence. And God says all of that is meant to lead us to see there is a God. That none of that has happened by random chance processes, but rather it has been put there. Those Pinpricks of light have been hung as giant balls of flaming gas by a creator God and is meant to cause us to seek after him in wonder and in worship. But what Paul also said and what we know just by looking around is that in our sinfulness, we distort and twist the things that we see. We take the evidences before our eyes and say, no, uh, as well-developed a machine that the human hand is and all of its complexity, that's just an accident. That we started as amino acids in some great soup and we evolved into larger life forms over time until we have become the dominant species on this earth. And you know what? We're not even that good because we trashed the place. That's not what we should see in creation. But in our sin, we distort what we see to the point that we do not believe in the one true God. We either make up gods of our own design or we simply worship ourselves. And yet, and yet, across the cultural landscape throughout history, most people do not, did not arrive at the conclusion that we in our great hubris have in these recent days to say, ah, there is no God. No, they believe there was a God. In fact, it's funny that, uh, as Doug mentioned uh, several weeks ago, that the people in Rome thought Christians were atheists because we only believed in one God. One God? Well, you're atheists. We believe in many gods. And all those gods had to be satisfied. You see, here's the other thing that Paul tells us, and he's been laying it out in chapter 2, and that is every single person, whether Jew or Gentile, we have an innate sense of right and wrong. We know that lying is wrong, and we choose to do it anyway. We know that stealing is wrong. It's the reason why we do this number before we put the candy bar in our pocket. We know it's wrong, but we choose to do it anyway. And that goes on and on and on for multiple things and in all parts of life. But here's the tension. We know between the difference between right and wrong, we choose the wrong. And we know there is a God, even if it's not the one true God. And these two things collide together. And we know that because we have done wrong things, there is a God out there that needs to be satisfied. He needs to be mollified or else in his anger, he will do something to me. Perhaps the crops will fail. Perhaps among the ancient peoples, uh, the, the fear was my wife won't have any kids. My animals won't be able to have kids and reproduce. A rock slide will take out my town or a volcano will lay waste to my island. All kinds of other things might happen. 
And therefore, I must find some way to propitiate the wrath of the gods. Now, that's a word that will stop a conversation. What in the world does a propitiate mean? Well, it's a great old English word that no one uses anymore, in part because there's so many people who don't believe in God anymore. To propitiate means to satisfy wrath. So they believe that there is a God. There are lots of gods out there. And they are angry at us because we have not worshipped them, because we've not honored them, because we've done bad things. And we need to do something to cause their anger to go away. We need to do something to satisfy their anger. There is an innate sense for propitiation to take place. But guess what? It never comes fully and finally. The ancient peoples, the pagan peoples never felt safe in the truest sense. Why? Because they made gods in their own image rather than seeking after the God in whose image they were made. And so the gods that they came up with were jealous. They were capricious. They were wicked. They were basically just exaggerated human beings. And what that meant was at any moment, they might break out in anger against us and do something against us. And, and, and we don't really know how to propitiate that wrath of that anger. So the ancient peoples came up with all kinds of things to try and satisfy the wrath of the gods that they believed existed. They brought food sometimes during harvest times. Others developed elaborate rituals and dances. Some even offered animal sacrifices, believing blood would satisfy the anger of the gods. In their wickedness, some even offered their firstborn children into ovens shaped like the belly of the god they worshipped with its arms out rolling that infant down, hoping that somehow that would ease that God's wrath and terror against them. We still see many of these things today, don't we? Though our beliefs may not be in this country as solidified or our traditions as, as clear, we see so many people with this vague belief that if they just do enough things, it will all be okay at the end. Well, we all, we all know we're not perfect people and we all do lots of bad things. But you know, I, I give blood every year when the blood drive comes. I donate a lot of money to charities. I support those kids that have no food over in Africa or wherever they at. I give, I give money to that. And what's the thought? The thought is that somehow if there is a God, the good things that I do will make up for the bad things that I do. That somehow it'll all equal out and I'll be okay at the end. Of course, there are organized religions today, both Christian and pagan. And, and in paganism, not a lot has changed in some of those cultures. But even in Christianity or even informal religion, people think that it's something they do, some act of devotion that will make them right with God. People misunderstand Christianity that way. Just yesterday at our state convention's annual meeting, I heard about a young guy who uh, many, many years ago showed up to every Sunday school class, showed up to every Sunday morning service, every Wednesday night prayer meeting, every Tuesday night visitation. And he wasn't even a Christian. But he thought by his involvement, by his showing up, by his opening the door and handing out the bulletins and saying hello to people, that he would somehow earn favor with God and that his sins would not be counted against him. So the question is, what can we do? Because even sitting here this morning, we know there's a God. We know we're not perfect. We have a sense of right and wrong, which helps us to know that we're not perfect. And we have this sense of God needs to be happy with me or it's not going to go down well on the last day. 
I do not want to die thinking God is angry with me. So what can we do? How can we find a source of propitiation for God's anger against our sin? One that is not repeated over and over and over again every time. Oh, I sinned again. I got to, you know, honey, go get, the, go, get the, go get the goat. Come on. We're having it for dinner tonight. I got to kill the thing. Or, you know what? You know, Christmas is a long ways off. I better go to church now because I stole money from work. What can we do? Well, Paul addresses this very issue in the passage before us this morning. He's already shown that the peoples of this world have lived for their own glory and they deserve God's wrath. More than that, Paul's own people, the Jewish people, they even had the scriptures still failed to believe and obey and therefore they also deserve God's wrath for their sin. Now in chapter 3, God shows us how it is not anything that we will devise. It is not any mechanism we will come up with, but it is God himself that will provide the very thing we need, propitiation of his just and righteous wrath against our sins. And he will do it through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Picking up his argument from chapter 2, Paul begins chapter 3 with this question then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charges with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. May God bless the reading of His Word. This is the glorious truth that Paul highlights in this passage, that in Christ we have the propitiation that we need. In Him we can be made right with God. We can die confident that God is ready to accept us apart from any religious or moral duty on our part. But before he unfolds that good news of the gospel, he needs to bring to a close his argument on why we need Christ. So in the first half of the chapter, we see the sinners who need propitiation. We see the sinners who need propitiation. Paul begins by answering objections that the Jews might give about what he said in chapter 2. What has he said? He said the same thing that he reiterates here. They have broken God's covenant and therefore they deserve wrath. Thus we see first... When thinking about what sin looks like, we see the covenant violation of sinners. We see the covenant violation of sinners. The Jewish people hearing God's condemnation of them in chapter 2 probably would have responded, well, if Jews and Gentiles are the same, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? In other words, what good is it being part of the covenant people of God? What have we been doing for a couple thousand years? Paul's answer is that there is much good in many in every way to being part of the people of God. Specifically, they were given the Scriptures, the very oracles of God, as well as the promises of God. In a very different situation, uh, think about what it would be like today. If you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, ask yourself, would you rather have been, have been raised in church or not raised in church? Would you have rather grown up around the things of God, perhaps come to faith at an early age, been held back from sin, or would you rather have been able to go and to live and to dishonor God grievously and then at some point be saved and repent? Hell, there's just no question. I mean, I, I remember when I was younger, the big thing about uh, testimonies, and maybe if you, you were raised in church in the 80s, you know this, the big thing about testimonies was to find the worst, the most awful sinner ever and get them to talk about coming to Jesus. And what that usually meant if they talked for 30 minutes, for 25 minutes you heard about their life of sin. You heard about all the bad things they did and then they heard the gospel they believed and now they're a Christian. And I remember I used to sit back and think, man, my testimony stinks. I mean, my parents got saved when I was four. I started going to church then and, and by eight I was saved and, and, and here we are. You know, and my dad says, no, 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 no. You have the good testimony. God kept you from all of that junk. How could you not treasure that as a gift of his grace? And Paul says the same thing to the Jews. What do you mean it's of no advantage? Of course it's an advantage. You among all the peoples of the world, you had the truth. You knew who God was. And even if by and large, not all, we cannot, we cannot uh, 
I guess the opposite of whitewash is blackwash, but that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't sound good. But we, we cannot overly stereotype all the Jewish people. There were many godly people among Israel. But by and large, the people were unfaithful, as Paul says. But that doesn't mean that God's going to be unfaithful. Their faithlessness to the covenant does not nullify, Paul says, the faithfulness of God to keep the covenant. Thus, his famous statement in verse 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Though every Jew ever fail to keep the covenant with God, God himself will not fail to keep the covenant. He's not going to go back on his promises. But here's the double-edged sword of God's faithfulness. He is not just going to be faithful to bless his people. He's also going to be faithful to curse his people. That's part of the old covenant. It's one of blessing and of cursing. So God says, if you obey out of faith and love, then I will bless. You will have prosperity. You will have wealth and riches. Your life will go well with you. But if you disobey me, if you repeatedly turn your back and in the language of adultery, go after other gods, then you should expect to receive judgment from my hand. Your, your crops are going to shrivel up and die. Drought will be what you know. The economy is going to tank. Your enemies are going to invade. And what does Paul say? Paul says, God is not unrighteous to inflict his wrath on his people because they were sinful. Just the opposite. It shows his faithfulness. It shows his righteousness to the covenant that he keeps his promises. Their condemnation is just. That's the first eight verses of this chapter. And then Paul, with the Jews and Gentiles in mind, he brings the larger charge against all sinners, the charge against sinners in verses 9 through 12. All of chapters 1 and 2 leads up to the question that Paul asked in verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Since chapter 1, he's been laying out the spiritual history of all mankind, both the Jews and the Gentiles. And here's his conclusion. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. Now, we've just said the Jews are better off for being God's people. What about that? That's true. But when it comes to sin, they have no advantage. Because everyone, as he will say, is a sinner by birth. Therefore, they have no advantage when it comes to escaping God's judgment just because they're Jews. Now, how many times have we read stories about people with connections getting special treatment? One of the things Melinda and I, Melinda and I like to watch is classic Law and Order, particularly the, the early, early seasons. We've kind of been going back through and watching those things. It's amazing how many times uh, they show in the course of the stories people that have money or some kind of influence get a different level of treatment, whether it's in a job or whether it's before the courts. At least that's the assumption that's going to be made. Perhaps even in your workplace, someone who did second-rate work uh, got a first-rate uh, promotion because they knew somebody. And, and Paul says, as Jews, don't assume that's going to happen when it comes to God's judgment. Don't assume you're somehow getting an out. Just because you're the covenant people, he says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So again, he can say, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. But what does that sin look like? How does it actually affect us? That's what we see in verses 13 through 18. We see the corruption of sinners. The corruption of sinners. Our inherent sinfulness is evidenced by our sinful behavior. In other words, you can see, you can't see my soul. At least I hope not, okay? Uh, otherwise, that would be pretty freaky, okay? Uh, but uh, even if you were to somehow uh, do the autopsy, you're not going to see my soul. You might see my heart, 
physical heart. But you can't actually see my soul. You cannot see my sinful nature. But you can see the effects of my sinful nature. You can see it in pride. You can see it in anger. You can see it in unkind words. You can see it in all kinds of things. And Paul lays this out for us, quoting verse after verse after verse. I mean, it's, it, you know, he's, he's like the... Uh, He's like the guy in the Old West that doesn't have one guy, he's got two. And he's just like, bam, 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 bam. I mean, that's what he's just doing, rapid fire quotations from the Old Testament. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruined in misery. The way of peace they have not known. Why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. That is not a pretty picture. Did you notice the kind of verses that Paul uses? They're all about parts of the body. Talks about throats and tongues and lips and mouths spewing forth hate and deception. He talks about feet running towards sin, about eyes looking away from God to other things. Why is he doing that? Because he's wanting to highlight to us the totality of our corruption. He wants us to understand there is no part of us that is somehow free from the taint of sin. Why? Because it's at our deepest level, the level of our soul, and therefore it affects every part of us. This weekend, I got cornered by a guy who wanted to argue some theology, and this was one of the things he denied. We are not totally corrupted by sin. Specifically, we have a mind and we have a will that is not, a, a, not tainted by sin. Oh, really? Well, that's surprising because in verse 11, Paul says, no one understands. How do you understand something? It's not with your finger or your pinky toe. It's with your mind. And if your mind has no understanding because of sin, Paul is signaling to us what he makes clear elsewhere is that even how we think and therefore the decisions we make, our will is affected by sin. We are, in modern terminology, rotten to the core. There is no part of us that is not affected by our sinful natures. And it is given evidence to that in how we live our lives. I mean, I heard someone yesterday, again, at the convention say, they hate reading the newspaper anymore. Why? Because all it is is sin, 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 sin. Makes great headlines, but it's very discouraging. I, I have it set up on my phone, an Amber Alert. My first thought is, okay, I've got to be on the lookout now. Am I going to see this car? So I'm driving around, doing this number, going slower than I should, people honking the horn. But my second thought is, what sin has taken place that this is necessary now? So, somewhere along the line multiple times. Everywhere you look, not just out there, but in the mirror, we see evidence of our sin. Paul says, here ultimately is, is what it comes down to. Verses 10 and verse 18. No one seeks for God because there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the root of our sinfulness. That's the cause of our just condemnation. And that brings us to Paul's last description of our sin. Verses 19 through 20, the condemnation of sinners the condemnation of sinners. Because all have sinned, all will be condemned, and justly so. The apostles labor for two chapters to show that no one will be able to speak a word against God in the last day. No one can say, now God, this is not fair. This is just not fair. Paul says, there's not going to be any of that. None of it. Everyone is, everyone is without excuses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world would be accountable to God. Well, what, what, what is he saying there? Well, think about it for a second. If the Jews had the blessings of the law of God, but they're not righteous and they're not exempt from judgment because of their sin, what makes you think that anyone else in the world is going to be exempt from judgment? There's nothing. No one's going to be exempt. If by works the law, no human being will be justified in sight, then how can people who don't have the law be justified in God's sight? The law can't make you righteous. Why? Because the law can't change your heart. We have sinful hearts. All the law does is wind us up, exposing us as sinners. Paul will say in chapter 7, I didn't know what it meant to covet until the law said, do not covet. It's like when I was in grade school and, and some teacher said, all right, now listen, follow my instructions clearly. Do not think about a pink elephant. What did you just think about? Pink elephant, probably. Unless you're thinking, this guy's nuts. What's he talking about? When the law says, don't lie, don't steal, guess what? Our simple hearts say, yeah, let's steal, let's lie. That sounds good. That's what Paul says. So the law can point out our sin. It can tell us right from wrong, but it cannot change our hearts to do right over wrong. Because we're not fundamentally good, we're fundamentally evil. Thus, he says, every mouth, Jews and Gentiles, will be stopped on the last day. And that is important for us to understand because we live in a context, a cultural context, where it is the exact opposite. You watch television shows, you watch movies, you read newspapers, and the assumption is humanity is fundamentally good. And if there's something wrong with us, it's probably somebody else's fault. We say things like, well, I shouldn't have done it, but they made me so mad. It's not my fault. This is, this is how my parents raised me. Or even better, I was just born this way. Just like the very first sin committed by Adam and Eve, and they started blaming one another, we do the same thing today in all of our sin. Well, it's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. I'm not taking responsibility for this. And Paul says, no, no. We are sinful because we are sinners. It is our fault. And God will have every reason to justly condemn us on the last day. Now you think about how hard Paul has hammered that home. And he's had various reasons, hasn't he? We, 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 we talked about on the first week that one of his goals is to bring together the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in this congregation because there is threatening to be this split. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not what the gospel's about. The gospel is being together. And so on one level, he's showing Jews and Gentiles are, in, are no better or no different in some ways. They're all sinful and they all need a savior. There's one way of salvation. But I think there's another reason why he is hammering this like the way he is. And, and, it's, and it's an argument from experience. Until we come to see the total and, other, uh, and utter depth of our sin, the hopelessness of our condition, the just condemnation we deserve, we will never, we will never savor the sweetness of the gospel of Christ, which says, here's the good news, God forgives sinners. The bad news must be really bad before the good news is really good to us. And that's what Paul shows us in the rest of the chapter. He shows us the Savior now, the Savior who brings propitiation, the Savior who brings propitiation 
Two, two weeks ago, we said in Romans 1, 16 through 17, we found the theme of the letter. Here in verses 21 through 26, we find the heart of the letter. Here we see the gospel itself. Everything that he said has been leading up to these verses, and everything that he will say afterwards is either an explanation or an application of these verses. And how does it begin? With the righteousness of God. Paul brings the Gentiles back into the conversation by showing them that the way to God used to be through the Old Covenant, but now, but now, that doesn't just mean like now in this letter, it means now in the history of human civilization. God is doing something new now through Jesus. Now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. You don't have to be a Jew to know the righteousness of God. That's what Paul is saying. Does that mean that it's somehow completely off the map? No, 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 no. The law and the prophets bear witness to this. What is it? It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 22. Anyone who believes in Christ will experience the righteousness of God apart from the law of Israel or any good work that they may do. And so Paul wants to show, first of all, Christ's sacrifice for God's people. He wants us to understand Christ's sacrifice for God's people. He says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short the glory of God. And all, it's implied, are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, what does justified mean? Well, that is a legal word. It's a word from the law courts that Paul takes up. It's also in the Old Testament too, but, but he's bringing these, these ideas, the idea of the Old Testament and using a, a, a Greek word, a Gentile word to explain it clearly. It's if you were to be put on trial and all the evidence is brought out and you're found not guilty, then you are justified by the court. You're declared not guilty by the court and you go free. And what Paul is saying is that it is possible to be justified before God. It is possible to have a right legal standing before God whereby he says, not guilty. Not guilty before me. Now, the, the, the problem with that is, and what we should be say is, wait a minute though, I am guilty. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, you bring the evidence out, I am guilty. So how can God call me not guilty? Paul says, it comes as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not what we do that brings justification. It's what God has done. How can he do that though? How can God forgive sinners who have actually sinned? More than that, how can he declare them to be righteous? Because that's what he just said. The righteousness of God becomes ours. In faith, by faith in Christ. Notice he says, verse 24, this comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is another word that he picks up on. Old Testament concept, Gentile word, using it to explain it. It's from the slave market. Now, we've said it many times before, and I won't labor the point. I'll tell you what sermon I go listen to online if you want to get more of it or send you the, the manuscript, but slavery in this country is not slavery in ancient Rome. Okay, you got to get those two thoughts out of your, out of your head to understand anything the Bible says about slavery. Okay, particularly in the Roman context. One of the things that might happen is you, you amass some debt because of some you know, financial problem you had, maybe not even any fault of your own. You, you just lost everything. And you say, how am I going to pay this back? I can't. So what do you do? You indenture yourself. You become a slave to that person to work off your debt for them. 
And at the end of the time of working, when you have, a, you have paid back that master, then, then your debt is redeemed and you are freed from slavery. Or perhaps your uh, wealthy relative comes back from war. And because they have been successful, they get cash prize from the Roman government. And they say, I want you free. And they go and they pay off your debt and they redeem you out of slavery. Paul says, this is what God has done for his people. We were enslaved to our sin. And God has redeemed us by the blood of his son. He has led us out of captivity of, from sin into righteousness. Now, again, we say, okay, but how is that possible? And here's where we get right into the thematic key, the title of this sermon, the notion of propitiation. Christ's death could serve as a means of redemption that secured our justification because he was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Though condemned by our sin, all of God's just and righteous wrath against us is satisfied. It's fulfilled. It's already been poured out. How? Through the cross of Christ. Jesus shed his blood for his people. And through the shedding of that blood, he hung in our place, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve. Thus, in Jesus, we have the thing that people have wanted from the beginning of time. Full, final, lasting propitiation with God that gives us a sense of peace that when we come face to face with our maker, we will be accepted by him and not condemned for our sins. And notice the difference between all of the pagan conceptions and ideas and working towards propitiation and that which we find in the gospel. John Stott explains it so well. I'm just going to read what he says. He says, It would be hard to exaggerate the differences between the pagan and Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their poultry of offerings. According to Christian Revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Do you see the difference there? From beginning to end, our redemption, our justification comes by God giving His own Son to be our propitiation. He does not say, look, you've got to give lots of stuff. You've got to do all this stuff. He says, no, 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 listen. I'm going to save you and I'm going to do it. I'm going to save you not because of something you've done, but because of what my Son will do. And so with great love towards people who do not deserve it, He says, here is the sacrifice that you need. Here is the, the righteous and precious blood spilled out so you need never worry again about satisfying my wrath and my anger against your sin. My own son will bear the wrath that you deserve. Christ saves God's people, uh, or rather Christ's uh, sacrifice is given for his people, but also secondly, Christ then shows us God's righteousness through all this. Christ shows God's righteousness Paul says all of this, verse 25, all of this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul is saying, look, the cross does not mean 
that God somehow ignored or failed to punish sins committed before the coming of Christ. Furthermore, he tells the Jews who are especially wondering about this, it does not mean that those who were offered forgiveness by sacrifices under the old covenant did not receive forgiveness by sacrifices over the covenant. No, just the opposite. Paul says, God held back. He was forbearing. He was patient. He held back the fullness of his wrath against sin that sinners might be allowed to stand before him without full propitiation and sacrifice of his justice. See, but how is that possible? It's possible because... It's possible because all of the sacrifices given in Israel were shadows reflecting forward to the true sacrifice of Christ. So when God says, offer the lamb and you will be forgiven, Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away God's wrath against sin. So did they work or not? Yes, they worked. Because when God says, offer the sacrifice... He's got one eye on the faith of the one giving the sacrifice and he's got another eye on the coming of his son upon whom all of these sacrifices are established. I mean, just in real simple terms here, if you're not getting this, if you're just not getting it, if maybe a, a kid here, you, you have fun on a camp trip or at your home, you get a flashlight out and you start making bunny rabbit faces or birds or dogs or whatever it is, that, that shadow on the wall, there's nothing there, Right? But what's there? Your hand is making the movement. It's making the motion. And what Paul says is the sacrifice of Christ is the real sacrifice. And all of the others that were offered in faith were acceptable because they were shadows of that one sacrifice. God is not unjust in his saving of sinners, in his patience towards them. God is not unjust because day after day he did not unleash the fullness of his wrath against sinners because the fullness of his wrath was held back until the coming of Christ. And what's the result? The result is that Christ saves for God's glory. Christ saves for God's glory. In these final verses, Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now notice what he's saying here. First of all, because God saves by grace and not works, there's no place for boasting. There's no place for boasting. There's no place for pompous, prideful arrogance that would say, I, I knew the truth and I trusted in Christ. No, there's no place for that. You didn't earn your salvation with God. You did nothing to merit it. All of it came as a gift of God's grace. Therefore, the glory goes to him and not us. Furthermore, notice there's no distinctions now among God's people. There's no more distinctions among God's people. There's only one distinction that matters. Are you a disciple of Christ or are you not a disciple of Christ? That's it. And so between these Jews and Gentiles struggling to find unity, he says, what, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes. Today we might ask, is God the God of Caucasians only? Is God the God of blacks only or Latinos or Mexicans or Asians or Africans? The rich only, the poor only, the politically conservative only, the politically liberal only? And the answer is no to all of them. God is one. God is one over one humanity. That is those seen in a diversity among many things. 
there's only one God, and He's the God of us all. In Christ, such distinctions exist. We have to be careful here. Sometimes we can go overboard and just say, well, I don't see color. Really? What's the matter with you? I mean, it's obvious. My skin tone is a lot lighter than most people in this world. It's there. The distinction is there. In this country, I'm lower middle class, according to some standard. But when I go across the world to over half the peoples in this world, I'm a very wealthy man. The distinction is there. But Paul says it doesn't matter anymore. It's of no consequence. It's of no consequence because all of us, regardless of our skin tone, regardless of our ethnic background, regardless of our, of our poverty or our riches, all of us were sinful to the core, deserving of wrath. But when we trusted in Christ, all of us were justified. All of us were redeemed because of the propitiating sacrifice of Christ. Finally, what of the law? Do we just get rid of the Old Testament? Do we just forget about everything that came before? Even today, should you read and treasure it? Paul says, yes. Yes, of course you should. It's not that it doesn't matter anymore. Of course it matters because it pointed forward to Christ. The glory of God is seen all throughout the scriptures because all the scriptures point to them. It shows the glory of his faithfulness and his justice and his patience and his graciousness. So no, we do not get rid of the law. We uphold the law. We uphold the law because salvation comes in Christ. The law is upheld. It's still important for us. In 1759, a man named William Cooper was 28 years old and he had a total mental breakdown. He tried three different ways to commit suicide that year. What drove him to such depression? He was convinced that he was beyond all hope with God. There was no way God could ever forgive him for his sins. Four years later, he was committed to an insane asylum called St. Albans. In the providence of God, his doctor was Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, a Christian who loved God and the gospel. And for six months, Cotton tried to show Cooper the love of God in Christ. But Cooper was convinced that he would never be good enough to be saved. Cooper decided, or rather, Cotton decided to try and let Cooper discover the truth for himself. And so he knew that Cooper loved to go and to uh, sit in these gardens in a certain area around St. Albans and to, and to, to think. And so he, he left a Bible for him there one day. And Cooper finally began reading and eventually he found his way to Romans 3. And he read these words, all have sinned and fall short the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Cooper writes, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. And now because of that, we can sing the words that Cooper wrote so many years ago. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Father, when we think about this marvelous work of Christ, Father, we cannot comprehend the 
the depth of love that you showed us in sending him. But Father, we can quite easily comprehend the joy that comes in knowing we do not need to earn our salvation. Because Father, every day, whether saved or unsaved, whether churched or unchurched, we know that we are not perfect. And Father, if we were to try to be, it would probably, like Cooper, drive us insane. Father, we are thankful that you give us your son and the salvation he provides as a gift by your grace. Father, may we know that. May we believe that. May we treasure that. Father, if there's someone that's here today and they are not a Christian, may you open their eyes to see not just their need, but the offer of salvation that you make through your son. And may they come to believe and trust in him. Father, for those of us that do know, may the gospel be so precious to us that it bubbles up, with, it bubbles up from within inside of us, coming out in conversations among God's people and among those that still need to hear. Father, may we be in every way a gospel people, telling and living in light of those great truths. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.